Well, good morning again. Please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Nehemiah chapter 11. All good things must come to an end, and therefore so must the story of uh, Nehemiah, regrettably in more ways than one today. But I um, want to give a brief recap because I, I was out last week. We were down in Birmingham for a wedding, but we have just reached an incredible high point in the ministry of Nehemiah. We've had uh, the, the We've had the reading of the law with Ezra. We have had repentance. We have had rejoicing. We've had observations of feasts. We've had the public retelling of Israel's history. We've had a public written covenant with Yahweh, particularly focusing on honoring the temple worship. This takes us right to chapter 11, and we're just wondering, how could it get any better? How, how could it get any better? This is what we've been waiting for. This is what we've been waiting for the people of God to do throughout the entire Old Testament. We're seeing things that are, frankly, unprecedented. So what happens? Well, starting in chapter 11, we actually continue what started in chapter 7. So if you turn back with chapter, to chapter 7 very briefly, let me adjust this microphone here a little bit. If you, chapter 7, verse 4 if you recall, after the wall is finished, it says the city in verse 4 was wide and large, but the people within it were few and no houses had been rebuilt. Then my God put in my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And then we get the Ezra, excuse me, the, uh, the Ezra 2 list essentially there in Nehemiah chapter 7. So there's a problem. The wall has been built, but a city with a nice wall with no one in it is not altogether impressive. It's still a ghost town. And then what follows, 8, 9, and 10, which is a glorious parenthesis, which is nevertheless a parenthesis that you're going to notice in chapter 11, we pick back up. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. They lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in uh, the other town. So the leaders lived in the city. That's the picture. But they needed to repopulate it. And unsurprisingly, there wasn't a great rush of people to go into the city. Why? Well, all of my stuff and my land and everything else is out here. Nehemiah comes up with a great strategy. I can't have them you know, disliking me because of this. So I'm going to have them cast lots. And according to my math here, 10% of them were chosen to uh, go into the city while the rest of them remained in the other towns. And then in verse 2, there was kind of those people who ruined the curve for everybody. You know, the people blessed all those men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. So apparently some people are like, okay, I'm going to take one for the team here, even though perhaps I wasn't chosen by lot, and move into the city to populate the city now that the wall has been built and the temple erected. And in, in starting in verse 3, you get a list of some of those leaders, Judahites, Benjamites, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, and that list takes you all the way up through verse 25. And in verse 25, you get a list of folks who are in the outlying villages, and you get a lay of the land right outside the actual city of Jerusalem, and it's a little bit wider than a lot of people might have 
uh, expected. These are the villages right outside the city that the people would have come from. And as you move on through the genealogy in chapter 12, starting in verse 1, you get a zoomed out version of the priests and Levites who are there all the way back to Zerubbabel. These are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. And we get a big, another big, long list. This is, this is the team as it stands right now. That goes all the way down to verse 26. And then in verse 26, it, what begins is, I would say, the culmination of the book of Nehemiah in one sense, and that is the dedication of the wall. Of course, you could argue, well, maybe what's come before is the climax uh, I'm not going to be the the the, the, the um, you know the, the climax police here. De- dedication of the wall seems to be in the story the primary cause of Nehemiah leaving from Persia. Here we are finally, after opposition, we are dedicating this wall to the Lord. And so what they did, look in verse 27, is they had the Levites all come in. This is a big deal. They're bringing everyone in. The Levites are summoned into. The city. They sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and singing, and cymbals, and harps, and lyres. This is a big deal. This is a big, big deal. This is the culmination of all of this work. You have the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem. So those villages that I just that we just read about, they're pulling in all the singers. Uh, from those districts. Apparently, in verse 29, we learned the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. You had musical talent. There was a little burrow for you, apparently. And so the priests and the Levites purified themselves. They purified the people and the gates and the wall. We don't know exactly what that means. No commentator had any idea exactly what that means. But they purified themselves, the people, and then the gates uh, and the wall as part of this dedication and then what happens is we're going to get two choirs, two choirs, and it's really more than just a choir because we're going to see there's some instruments, and they're going to form a, a bit of a marching band, two, okay? Then I brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall, and so the picture is they are walking on top of the wall, around the wall, but on top of it, two great choirs that gave thanks, two great choirs to give thanksgiving. One had the misfortune of heading towards the dung gate, as 31, verse 31 says. And it says that certain of the priest's sons, in verse 35, brought their trumpets along with them. Now, it can't escape our notice here. Let me just pause and say that the last time a marching band was formed to walk around some walls, it was the walls coming tumbling down in the fortified city of Jericho at the very beginning of the story. The very beginning of the people of God's story in the promised land. The very end of the story here, the Old Testament here in the Promised Land, where here we are marching around the wall. We're on top of the wall this time. Uh, but it is not to bring the wall down. It's to celebrate what God has done despite an incredible amount of adversity. So that's the first group of folks. Uh, and they were led, verse 36, by none other than Ezra. He probably had no musical talent, but it didn't matter. He wasn't singing. He was the one just walking. It says, Ezra the scribe went before him. At the fountain gate, they went straight up before by the stairs of the city of David at the ascent of the wall above the house of David to the water gate on the east. Choir number one slash marching band, number one. Second, 38, the other choir of those who gave thanks went to the north 
And I, Nehemiah, followed them with half of the people on the wall, above the tower of ovens and to the broad wall. Now, what it goes on to say is it's not clear that they march all the way around uh, the city. Okay? It's not clear that they march all the way around the city, but somehow they end up at the temple. Verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God, and I and half of the officials with me. And he gives a list of those and some of the priests. And apparently the kind of the minister of music there, Jezrahiah, the end of verse 42, led them in song. And the singers sang with Jezrahiah as their leader. And then verse 33 sums up everything, crowns everything, is supposed to make us feel what we have been reading this whole time and how it's culminated here. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Again, another contrast. Remember the last time the sound of Jerusalem was heard far away? It was when the temple was dedicated and you couldn't tell, you know, the, half the people were crying and wailing because they said this isn't what the old one was. And all, other people were shouting and that was what was heard far away. This is a much better picture Wow, this is a much, much better picture. And the emphasis on joy, the emphasis on joy is remarkable. Listen to that again in one verse. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoice. <coughs> Excuse me. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced in the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away to the great dismay of Sanballat and Tobiah, I am sure. And then what seems a little bit odd to us is right after this, there are two snapshots of kind of a new normal here. And this is where some of it gets a little bit tricky. But you're going to notice in verse 44, it says, on that day. Then you're going to notice in chapter 13, verse 1, it says, on that day. And that is going to, that's, that is the author, the final editor of Ezra and Nehemiah, trying to connect these two little snapshots we're going to see with verse 43 which they, ESV took, took, took out the on, but it's there, the same phrase in the Hebrew. And they offered great sacrifices on that day. Okay, the on that day. They're trying to say, listen, in conjunction with the culmination of Nehemiah's ministry, here are two other snapshot things that happened. And we're going to get a little bit more of that as we go along. So what is the first thing that happened? On that day, you have people who were appointed over the storerooms in the temple, contributions, first fruits, and tithes. And they performed the verse 45 and they performed the service of their God and the service of the purifications, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. And then they're going to zoom out for long ago in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers like Jezrahiah, presumably. And there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which for the sons of Aaron. Don't forget that. All the days of Israel, from Zerubbabel to Nehemiah, they set apart all these things. They set apart all the portions. They honored the temple. That's the first kind of 
The second, on that day, it doesn't say why these people are together to read the book of Moses, but it was a day. This is something that happened in conjunction with the, the, the culmination here. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. Now, just to be clear, the assembly there is the Hebrew word kahal. It's what ends up getting translated most of the time of ecclesia or church um, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, and in the New Testament. So this is not that uh, a Moabite, for example, could not be in somehow part of the people of God. You have someone like Ruth who testifies against that understanding. The assembly here is coming together for the worship of the Jewish people particularly. This is a very special kind of worship and assembly just for them. And it goes on to say, you know, they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. And as soon as the people heard this, so they're reading the law, they hear this, they, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent, which is a horrible translation there, by the way. Uh, it's a, it, it literally means those of mixed descent. Because you read that and you just make, it makes it sound like foreigners. They separated from foreigners. What well, didn't say they separated from those who were foreign, those of foreign descent. It's a poor ESV translation. Literally, it's something like the mixed multitude. The mixed multitude, um, and particularly given what we're going to see in just a little bit, it's likely that what this refers to is the children of mixed marriages who, not, who, who were not yet uh, sure which God, which religion they were going to pledge devotion to. It's not clear at all that they had allegiance to Yahweh because it seemed like they may have had one foot in one camp and one foot in another. And so for the purpose of coming together to worship Yahweh particularly, those people were left out. Those people were left out. Now, the joy of the people of God we see here, the reforms, the, the people taking care of the temple, bringing in the tithe, the, the purity of the community, it's what we've all been expecting. We read the, we, we just came out of the prophet series. This is what we've been waiting for. This is glorious. It's even what we've seen here in Nehemiah. The promises haven't been empty. Here we are. And then in verse 4, something very, very interesting happens. Look down at verse 4 with me. It says, now before this, before this. So have you ever got to the end of a story? And then at the end of the story, you said some things that happened during the story that you left out until now? That's what this is. Here we're going to get a long P.S. A very long P.S. But notice it says before this. So it's not as if all these things happen and then these happen, which would be a very natural way to read Nehemiah 13. But it's saying something much, it's, it's odd. The editor is going to, the, the final compiler of Ezra and Nehemiah is going to tell us about things that were going on back in the story, before this, before what we just read in chapter 12 and so on. But he's including it at the very end. He's telling us at the very last second here. And what does he tell us at the last second? Well, let's see. Now, before this, he says, Eliashib, the priest, who's probably not the high priest, number one, doesn't say hi. Number two, what he's doing does not describe the high priest's duties. Um, but a common name, though, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to 
Tobiah? Tobiah? Horus and Jasper Tobiah? Yes, that's the one. What did he do for him? Verse 5, he prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels and tithes of grain, wine and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers and gatekeepers and the contributions for the priests. Tobiah has got an Airbnb apartment in the temple. How could this have possibly happened? Nehemiah is quick to say in verse 6, while this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. Uh, uh, Artaxerxes could be called the king of Babylon because he, that's who he conquered and because he had control over that region. Nehemiah didn't forget that Artaxerxes was, was Persian. Um, and so he was, he was gone. So just think about this. Sometime during what we've been hearing, during and the chronology is difficult. How far exactly do you go back? There was a point at which Nehemiah left. And he came back and this he found this stuff. He finds Tobiah, his little apartment there in the temple. So apparently he's back there in Persia. And after some time, I asked leave of the king. He thought, you know what? Something is not quite right here. Like, I don't have a lot of conviction that things are going really well there back in Jerusalem. So he asked the king to take leave again and came to Jerusalem again and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. What does he do? He said, and I was very angry and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Okay? Tosses the rocking chair, all of it, right out into the front. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Okay? What else? That's it, right? Probably that's it. No, that's not it. Regrettably, that's not it. In verse 10, we learn something. It's probably related to why there was an empty room in the first place. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had each fled to his field. So they were supposed to be provided for by the people so they could sit there and work in the temple, but the people stopped bringing those in, and they said, well, we got to eat. So that's what he said. See ya. Peace. I'm out of here. Went back to their place outside the city. So Nehemiah confronts the officials. He confronts them. Why is the house of God forsaken? He says. What is going on? Then I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And then all Judah brought the tithe, the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. Now, let me just give one suggestion here for how far this goes back. One very popular suggestion is that all of these things happen before the covenant in chapter 10. Okay, so for example, in chapter 10, in verse 38 and 39, listen to the language of the covenant they end up taking. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are 
as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and singers. Okay, so does it go back that far? And then that covenant is a response to Nehemiah coming back and finding these things. Perhaps it is. It seems plausible, but I, I suppose we can't know uh, for sure. He says, remember me, verse 14, O my God, concerning this. Do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Please, I have labored well and I've labored for you. I've labored for your glory. Please don't let this wipe out. Please remember me, he says. So that's probably it, right? That's probably it. Smooth sailing from here. No. No, no. In those days, so now we're at an indefinite period of time before what we've read already. In those days, I saw Judah, in Judah, people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. So we're profaning the Sabbath now? Imagine his disapp- Imagine our, I mean, our disappointment is palpable. Imagine Nehemiah, the man who's labored for, for all these things. He warned them when he saw them. I warned them on the day when they sold food. But then it gets... Worse, the Tyrians, who were well-known Phoenician merchants, look what they were doing. They lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods, and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. In Jerusalem itself. Is that part of the oath in 1031? Go back to 1031, what does it say? It says, and if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath day or on a holy day. Perhaps. Just giving you the connection here. Perhaps that that was in response to this and the chronology goes back that far. And so Nehemiah confronts the nobles. He holds them accountable for this. He holds them accountable for it. I confronted the nobles, verse 17, in Judah, and said to them, What is this evil thing that you're doing profaning the Sabbath day? What are you doing? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us in the city? And now you're bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. This is how we got into this mess. What are you doing? What are you thinking? He says. And so he takes some next steps. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded the door should be shut and gave orders that should not be open until after the Sabbath. So when people don't want to obey, you just physically make them do so uh, in this particular case. So we're just going to close the gates and then we're going to problem solved. Problem solved. The Tyrians aren't going to be coming in because the gates are going to be closed. And unless they got a flying machine, they're going to be outside the gates. But where do we find them? Right outside the gates. That's where the Tyrians are. They said, you know what? We can't get in. We're going to stand right outside. Look at verse 20. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of uh, sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. We can't get in. We're going to be like right outside. So that when the first person comes out, we're, you know, selling our stuff to them. Nehemiah. Yeah, they did it once or twice. But he warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. 
It's going to get serious if you do this again. An odd thing, perhaps, to hear from Nehemiah, who's handled some things with a lot of tact recently, but he says he's going to lay hands on these people. And then it says, from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Okay. One commentator says, we may detect some dry humor here in his saying that from that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Okay. I'm sure this guy is not the life of the party. But if, if this is a piece of dry humor... Um, it's extremely dry. But uh, that time on, they didn't come on the Sabbath. And then I commanded the Levites, they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates. Remember this also in my favor, oh my God. So another remember passage. Spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Wow. All right. So now we're out of the weeds, right? Now we're ready for the turnaround. No, no, no. No, we're not ready for the turnaround. Verse 23, in those days, again, another season of time, another season of time. I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children. And remember how I, what I said about the, the, those of foreign descent, the mixed multitude back in 13.3. This is where I think this is plausible. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah but only the language of each people. Now, this is a big deal. It's not just like I'm not, I'm not bilingual or something. To not speak the language of Israel means that you wouldn't understand, for example, the reading of the law, that there would be certain parts of worship that you couldn't even partake in. And it certainly meant that, you were, that a different religion or a different culture was discipling you one way or another. So this was a huge, huge deal. And listen at what Nehemiah does. Again, a man who has acted with a ton of tact, very carefully. He says, I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. Kind of a bizarre action step there from a man who we've come to really think a lot of, and apparently this was going on back then, back in the story that we've already been listening to for four weeks now. Okay, so he beats them up, pulls out their hair, and then I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Does that correspond with chapter 10, verse 30, the obligation of the covenant? We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons, perhaps. Then he gives the historical example of Solomon as a bit of an exhortation. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made him even to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? So now we're done. No. No, we're not. Unfortunately, we find out something more shocking than Tobiah's apartment. When Nehemiah comes back, he discovers that one of the high priest's grandsons, the son of Jehoiada, the son was married to the daughter of Sanballat. Apparently, they thought it was a good idea to marry into 
The Sumerian family and the primary antagonist in the whole story as part of the priestly line. You understand how problematic that is? The high priest was not allowed to be married to a foreign woman at all in any way whatsoever. But as the law was even understood and applied at the time to marry for the high priestly family to marry a foreigner like that, and particularly to marry Sanballat's daughter, it would have been unthinkable. You're probably, you're, hopefully you're listening going, what are they doing? Like, is this made up? No. The two primary bad guys, one gets a son-in-law in Jerusalem and the other gets an apartment. It doesn't make sense. What does he do? Verse 28, therefore I chased him from me. Now this kind of cartoon understanding, like you see one man running across a courtyard and then like Nehemiah coming next is, is, uh, little, is not really what the Hebrews suggest. He, he, what he's doing here, he, he kicks him out. He kicked him, kicks him out of the priesthood. He kicks, he kicks him out of the temple. Presumably they would have gone and lived with uh, his, his wife back in Samaria, who was obviously very well off. And then sadly here, sadly, verse 29, remember them, oh my God. By the way, you remember last time you heard remember them? It was in chapter 6, and it was Tobiah and Sanballat, and he was asking God to remember them for their evil. Verse 14, chapter 6, remember Tobiah and Sanballat, oh my God, according to these things that they did, these two conspiracy theories. And here at the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah asks a different remembrance. Remember them, oh my God. Because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. So he says, I cleanse them from everything foreign, establish the duties for the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O God, for my good. The end. Look, if you turn the page, you turn the page, Nehemiah is over. It's Esther, which chronologically comes prior to Nehemiah. This is the last narrative, uh, the last inspired narrative of the people of Israel, people of God, in the Old Testament. It's the end of the story. To, to, to think that that's anticlimactic is a bit of a understatement, right? Even if you don't know exactly how far back this went, this is put at the end for a very very specific reason. And that is to put a very bad taste in our mouth. We can either be, we can be shocked, we can be saddened, we can be deeply suspicious, even if we thought that after all these things, they got together and made their own covenant and like, okay, it'll work this time. But at the end of the day, we, we are left going, uh, okay, at very best. And then silence. It's the end of the story, which allows us to now apply Nehemiah as Christian scripture. So so far, we've done kind of the big A, little A thing that I've suggested. But now we've heard the whole story, and we have to ask, how does Nehemiah fit into the larger story? And I'm happy to say that the application of Nehemiah is remarkably easy, not only because it repeats a pattern over and over from the Old Testament, but because it points us to our need for God to do something for us that we can't do for ourselves so very clearly. Just briefly, in full perspective, our best efforts to commit to and obey God are destined to fall short. 
our very, very best efforts, our most fervent commitments, our oaths of faithfulness, our utmost diligence, our very best works, even our efforts to remedy our own failures, putting in extra good works, punishing ourselves or other people, trying all kinds of self-atonement, even sorrow for our missteps, even having sorrow for our missteps doesn't somehow make us the kind of folks who can stand before God. You can weep and wail and ugly cry over your sin, and none of it necessarily means repentance. The Christian message starts with, you are not good enough. That's very countercultural. You are a fool and a failure. If you're not willing to start there, you get a sawed-off gospel. Because it only saves you from a hypothetical version of yourself that's a lot better than the, the person you were actually saved from. Our best efforts to obey God fall short. You are not good enough to stand before God, just to be clear. You are a fool and a failure. You might be wise in the ways of the world. You might do some civilly good works, but before God, no, as a matter of fact, you are not good enough. And you can keep trying over and over and over and over and over. And you can, and that's the, you can covenant with God. I'm going to make a covenant with you, God, to do this. You can make your own oaths, and guess what? It's still not going to work. So what does that mean? God's promises to us can only be accomplished by His work in us. Plain and simple. Plain and simple. The whole Old Testament, cat by Nehemiah, makes it clear that God has to move towards us. God must move towards us, work in us, and hold us in, hold us fast, as we sang earlier, in order for anything to go correctly. I promise you, if I could lose my salvation, I would. Not because I would, I'd want to, but because my desires would take over. I would not continue to desire godliness just because. The story of the Old Testament makes it very, very, very clear that God must work to accomplish His own promises. That doesn't mean that I'm not responsible. I am responsible. He must start the work, however. He must continue the work, however. And He must... Finish the work. If, if God is only sovereign on the front end or the back end, okay, God's sovereign on the front end, but kind of my effort keeps me in, or my effort gets me in, but he, you know, once I'm in, I'm saved forever or something like that. Neither, neither, none of us have any hope. None of us have any hope. It doesn't work, and it's out of touch with the storyline of Scripture. Nehemiah makes that, it seems to me, exceedingly Clear, right? When we had so, so much hope that perhaps this was it. Hey, if any time this is going to be it, this was this not supposed to be the time? You notice that the Old Testament and the New Testament both end with a walled and gated Jerusalem. Do you notice that? That's why we had that second scripture reading from Revelation 21. Old and New Testament ends with a walled and gated Jerusalem. And one provocative question we can ask as we are listening to the whole story in the book of Nehemiah is this. How do we move from the Jerusalem of Nehemiah to the Jer Jerusalem of Revelation 21? And the answer is 
Citizenship in the New Jerusalem runs through the Messianic King. And you will notice, if you go back and read that passage from Revelation 21, critically, it is not the tribes of Israel that are the foundation of the city. It's not. Their names are on the gates. What's the foundation of the city? What's on those? What's written on those? The, the, the names of the apostles of the Lamb. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. As part of the master plan, the perfect Israelite enters into history. The perfect Israelite lives this perfect life. He says, you're a failure. Guess what, though? I'm not. I'm perfect. I'm perfect because I'm God, but I'm also man. So I can sympathize with your weaknesses. I'm going to live a perfect life. I'm going to die a very, very unjust death that you deserve to die. And then I'm going to rise from the dead in victory over those things. Through repentance and faith, I can be united to a coming king. He is coming soon. We read about that. We're united with Christ. We are awaiting a, a king who is coming for us. And there will be a new Jerusalem that we will inhabit as a result of being united with a king who rules a kingdom. That is the essence of the gospel. It is to be redeemed from who we are and redeemed to something else. And Nehemiah, I think, would have us ask the question in fuller perspective, how do we move from one Jerusalem to another? And the answer is Jesus. Now, the gospel that I've just presented is not just for unbelievers. This seems very common to say, well, there's a gospel presentation and, uh, uh, you know, but I'm already a Christian. It's like, no, I, I know. There are so many of us who kind of get in and think we, you move on to like bigger and better things. It's like, there aren't bigger and better things. There's more technical theology. There's more arguments to be had and, and scripture to be memorized and everything else. But all of us are tempted to effort our way through the Christian life, effort our way into uh, God's favor, to do small, pathetic little efforts at self-atonement. What Only God can save us. Only God can be who we need. And that was true back when we first repented and believed, and that's true today. And so there is reason for the utmost hope. Because if you are in Christ, you are loved. The God of the universe loves you. He calls you friend. He wants to know you. He wants to nurture you. And at the end of the day, He will, in fact, hold you fast. And we can be grateful for that this morning. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for your provision for us in the person of Jesus. We are thankful for reconciling us to you. If we have repented of our sin, we have trusted in Christ for forgiveness. God, we long to know you more. We long to strive, but to strive after you with grace-fueled, gospel-empowered effort. I'm going to pray for the person in this room who's perhaps condemning themselves or trying to work harder or trying to pull the world and see how they stack up to make themselves feel better. and Just understand that if they have you as a Savior, none of those things matter. We don't need trinkets when we have the King. And so, God, as we walk away, pray that you would 
forgive us of our sin, to help us look at ourselves honestly and embrace the beauty of the gospel. In Jesus' name.